In Isaiah chapter 9, and I do hope you have your copy of God's Word open to that. In Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, the prophet Isaiah is foretelling specific events almost 700 years before the fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is writing this to give hope to fellow Israelites at their darkest moment. They're about to be carted off into Babylonian captivity. During this season, we have set aside our series on First and Second Peter that we'll resume at the beginning of the year. And we've been studying what the prophet Isaiah has been telling his hearers about the son of David who will come. And he's done this by way of telling them several of his titles that he'll bear. We've heard Isaiah say that the Messiah will, there's a word of certainty there, will be called the following things. He will be called wonderful. In other words, he will be a wonder in his person that he'll be both God and man. He'll be a wonder in his life. His miracles and teaching will demonstrate that. And he will be a wonder in his death and his resurrection. Isaiah goes on and adds another title. He'll be called our counselor. In other words, he'll be the sympathetic and wise one who is always available and always gives perfect counsel. Isaiah stacks more titles into this list. He says he will be known as the mighty God. Christ will be mighty in the sense that he'll do great exploits and defeat his enemies. And he'll be fully God in every sense of the word. The title that was somewhat confusing, hopefully last Sunday's exposition brought some clarity, is that in addition to be called Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, he'll be called Everlasting Father. Meaning that the Messiah, first of all, will have the attribute of eternality. He will have no beginning and no end. But he will be called Everlasting Father in that he will be a, a head of a, and a representative of a great family. He'll be called Father in that he will imprint his family image on every member of his family, all who are being conformed to his likeness. And he'll be called Father in that he will compassionately care and provide for his children. This morning, I want to exalt Jesus' prophesied title given to him almost 700 years before the fact that he will be called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah was writing in a tumultuous time. In Isaiah 7, in the context just before Isaiah 9, we heard of foreign kings gathering together to make war against Jerusalem. And as Isaiah gives his prophecy, battles are on the horizon. God's people are about to be carted off to Babylon in captivity. What hope and encouragement can Isaiah give his people? Listen to these words once again from Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This Christmas there is disharmony and fighting in every direction you look. If you look on the international scene, thousands have died in violence this week in Ukraine and Russia, Israel and Gaza, and other Middle East hotspots. Thousands die violent deaths weekly, every week that's on the calendar. There are Muslims slaughtering Christians, Sunnis killing Shias. In Africa, civil unrest is 
the cause of death for hundreds of people weekly from Nigeria to Somalia. Tribal feuds that date back centuries still result in bloodshed today. Our own nation is no different. Maniacal citizens shooting one another in cold blood on our streets. This weekend will be marked by family unrest, petty jealousy, small quarrels. Things will get out of hand and turn to murder. Everywhere you turn, there's lack of peace. If you think regionally, there's lack of peace between North and South. If you think politically and civilly, there's lack of peace between Republican and Democrat. Or if you think vocationally, there's lack of peace between labor and management. Even when you look at creation, there's a lack of peace and harmony. Tornadoes and earthquakes, violent hurricanes and floods, ravaging droughts. But most significantly, and this always has to be the place where we look first when we think of lack of peace, there is disharmony, even hatred and enmity between God and man. The Apostle Paul states this didactically for us in Romans 8 when he says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. In other words, infants come out of the womb shaking their fist at God hating him, being at war with him, not wanting peace with him. It was not until I was converted as a 20-year-old and began to give myself to the serious study of the Bible that I understood that this condition, alienation, division, are some of the effects of the fall. It was into this kind of world that Jesus was born with the intent of bringing peace. We're going to roll up our sleeves and do some deep digging in Isaiah 9, and so I hope you'll keep your Bible open. But at this time, let us ask the Lord to give illumination as we study his word. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we bow before you and your holy word now. We acknowledge that we are unworthy servants, not deserving to even possess your word, but how we praise you that you, because of your great love for us, your children, have revealed this to us. You've given us now this sharp sword that we hold in our hand that divides truth from error, belief from unbelief. You've given us this word that is sweeter than honey to nourish us and sustain us. You've given us a light for our paths while the rest of the world stumbles in darkness. So now take this word, make it understandable to us. Cause us by your Holy Spirit to learn and digest and profit from this very text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is meant by this title, the Prince of Peace? First of all, I want to at least acquaint you with this idea that Jesus came exhibiting the attribute of peace. When Isaiah's promised Messiah burst onto the scene, he demonstrated peace in the following ways. He was called the Lamb of God. You remember his cousin, according to the flesh, John the Baptist, saw him one day and pointed to him, we were told in John 1.29. And he pointed and he used this title. He said, look, the Lamb of God. He was frequently called a lamb, not a being known for its ferocity, but its peacefulness and gentleness. I've never known anyone who has a watch lamb because that would be sort of a, a failed exercise. Even in heaven, on his throne of sovereignty and rule, Jesus, according to Revelation 5, 6, is called 
the Lamb of God. He will forever bear this title. Why? Because he's peaceful. And then, what more proof do you need that he's peaceful and gentle? You remember that Jesus, in one of his great I Am statements in Matthew eleven twenty nine, says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This gentleness is a, a mildness, not a harshness, but a mildness in dealing with others. Jesus quotes Isaiah 42 and applies it to himself. He says, a bruised reed he'll not break, and a smoldering wick he'll not put out. The bruised reed and smoldering wick that Jesus refers to speaks of people who are broken almost to the point of destruction and others whose hope is flickering. And we see this peacefulness, this mildness and kindness demonstrated even with the smallest. You remember in, in Matthew 18, 2, we're told that Jesus calls a small child to himself and set him in the midst of them. Jesus is peaceful. But his peacefulness is shown as well by his patience and long-suffering with his enemies. Sometime in 2024, we will actually come to 2 Peter 3 in our consecutive exposition of First and Second Peter, and we will hear Peter tell us that Christ is long-suffering towards all men, not willing that any of his elect should perish. Think of how long he bore and how much he suffered with Judas, the ungrateful reprobate, and that's just one of billions. Our Jesus is peaceful. But his peacefulness, the fact that he's the Prince of Peace, is shown because he's always ready to repair a broken relationship. One of the things that marks a peaceful man is he loves reconciliation. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 86, you are good and ready to forgive and show abundance of mercy to all who call upon you. The Prince of Peace's delight is always to see reconciliation. There's some of you right now who are saying, boy, Carl, I don't think I like where this is going because I'm going to get together with my family tomorrow. And I remember what he said at Thanksgiving, and I've been waiting to get even with him. And then there's that uncle, that aunt, that grandparent, that grandchild who I've got a bone to pick with them. I need to air some grievances with them. And so I'm not planning on reconciling. I'm planning on making the relationship worse, not the Prince of Peace. He delights in reconciliation, never in the extending of hostilities. I think of two examples where Christ personally engaged in reconciliation. There are some of you who have no idea how to go about reconciliation. The Prince of Peace does. With Peter, after his fall, after his threefold denial, even including sharp curse words, his threefold denial that he even knew Jesus. As soon as Jesus has an opportunity, you remember that great occasion in John 21, here is our Savior, the Prince of Peace, here is him reconciling with those who are far apart. Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says, Simon, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. 
A third time, Jesus spoke and said, Simon, do you love me? Peter was grieved, we're told, because he said to him the third time. Of course, this is a third time of asking the question to match Peter's three cursing denials of a relationship with Jesus. Peter was grieved, but Jesus asked, asked a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus says this, by the way, to demonstrate his reconciliation with Peter. He doesn't lord it over Peter. He doesn't take Peter's sin against him and hold it over his head. He simply redirects him back into the path of ministry. And then again, another of the 12. It's interesting that two of the 12 Jesus sought out, and within a week of his resurrection, affects reconciliation. Jesus speaks to Thomas. After his raging unbelief in John 20, we're told there that after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. What was the first word on the lips of the Prince of Peace when he appears to all of the 11 living disciples? Peace. And he says to Thomas specifically, Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Did you notice something that Jesus does with, with Peter and Thomas both in that first week after his resurrection? He doesn't have to scold. He doesn't have to taunt. He doesn't have to lord their sin over them. These are men who are already broken enough. They're, they come repenting when they see Jesus. He reconciles with him. That's one of the actions that proves he is the Prince of Peace. So in fact, so greatly does our Jesus, the Prince of Peace, love reconciliation. We're told that he's committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Even on that Black Friday, and then on Golgotha's Hill, Jesus never once lashed out at his persecutors, his murderers, but he was like a gentle lamb. Even as he's Dying, gasping for his final breaths. He prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them because he's peaceful. It's one thing to say Jesus is peaceful, but is he a peacemaker? He's the Prince of Peace. Is that an empty title or is he a peacemaker? Let me point out five ways that Jesus makes peace. Five realms in which he makes peace. The first is vertical peace. The most important vertical meaning between man and God. Sinners were at war with God. There could never be any peace until the Prince of Peace reconciled those two, God and man. Colossians 1, in fact, says, we were alienated and enemies. Let me ask you, does your testimony include that? Or does your testimony make you look smart in that you chose Christ? And it was really no problem, no, no gulf to span, to make up. 
But Colossians 1 says every one of our testimonies of saving faith should include this. That before Christ made the peace, we were alienated and enemies of God. How did the Prince of Peace make vertical peace? By justifying men. By that great twofold exchange, by first of all, taking all of their guilt of sin upon himself and atoning for it. And then the second half of the great exchange of giving them his righteousness that he had earned by 33 years of perfect law keeping and his obedience. That he would lay his righteousness on guilty men covering their sin. And then, and only then, once we have been atoned for by Christ and once we have received his perfect righteousness, then and only then can we say with Paul in Romans 5, now, now having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first type of peace that the great Prince Prince of Peace made was vertical peace, peace between God and man. But the second piece, and I, the reason why I want to add these four other types of pieces, my fear is there are way too many people standing in this room today who say, okay, Carl, that's good. You said enough. Don't say anything else. Because if you say anything else, now you're going to be up in my business. Now you're going to require something of me. The second type of peace that the Prince of Peace makes is, Horizontal peace. Peace between man and man. God repeatedly stated in the Old Testament how much he hated the disturbing of the peace. In Proverbs 6, Solomon writes, There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven that are an abomination to him. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false discourse, a false witness who spreads lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. In other words, one who goes about disturbing the peace. One of the great strategies in the coming of the Prince of Peace was to shatter All barriers that men have erected, racial, economic, language, social barriers. One of his great works as the Prince of Peace was to knock those barriers down so that men might be reconciled to one another. And as a symbol of that, the greatest barrier that the Apostle Paul could think of was between Jew and Gentile. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2 and says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, speaking of Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made both, in the context he's speaking of Gentiles and Jews, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Paul says, There is no horizontal relationship in the world that is more fractured than Jew and Gentile. Yet Christ is, because he's the Prince of Peace, he has torn down every barrier that separated them. And so surely, men who come from 
different ethnicities, different language groups, different social groups, different economic groups can be reconciled. The Prince of Peace has done everything possible to bring that about. A third type of peace that the Prince of Peace came to make is internal peace. Jesus gives us the assurance that he is the, the Prince of Peace is working all things together for our good. If that will give you internal peace, I'm not sure what will. This last week I had the great joy to, to go to Oklahoma City very quickly during the middle of the week to do two things, really. I had a family wedding and so that was my excuse for going, but one was to get together with a group of guys who I was in the nursery at First Baptist Church Midwest City together with. We know each other. We were college roommates as well. And it was delightful to get together with these men, all Christian men, and spend the day telling stories. And the fish we caught then has now grown into this size. And, and then it was, it was delightful. And then at the same time, to spend an evening with my entire family on my side of the family and attend a family wedding, there's a cause for great joy. But one of the things that was deeply problematic, all of the people I'm talking about are confessing evangelical believers. I probably heard from 12, maybe 14 of them as I sat and talked. And they said, well, you know, Carl, I, I'm, I, I suffer from anxiety. I'm on medication for it. I have to avoid certain things. And so I've just got to go to this reception. The walls are closing in. And that person over there makes me nervous. And i got to go. And to talk to people in both of these groupings, who the first thing they wanted to tell me when asked how they were doing was, I'm anxious. I'm nervous, I'm fearful, I'm worried. I would do anything for peace. And so in one of the cases, the Lord opened a door for me to be able to say, you know, the Prince of Peace came that you might have internal peace. This is why Paul wrote when he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, may the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul can write that because this is one of the five types of peace that the Prince of Peace establishes, internal peace. In fact, when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit into a believer at conversion to indwell a believer, and he indwells every believer, he tells us that one of the nine character traits that the Spirit of God who comes as the representative of the Prince of Peace will be working is peace. The Prince of Peace comes to bring peace. A fourth type of peace that the Prince of Peace brings. He brings peace in creation. In Mark 4, one of my favorite scenes of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read the narrative of how Jesus calmed the fierce storms. We're told in Mark 4, a great windstorm arose and the waves beat into the boat so that it was filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And so the disciples, we were told, awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? He arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace. This is the Prince of Peace telling his creation to be still. We're told then those glorious words. 
the wind ceased, and there was great calm. But he said to his disciples, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Of course, the answer to their question, who can this be? The answer is, he is the Prince of Peace. This incident is but a small down payment on the future. Because we know from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 that the whole creation right now is groaning under the ravages and turmoil of the fall. The creation wants peace. But Paul says the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty. The prophet Isaiah will speak later in Isaiah 11 of this day when all creation will be living harmoniously, when wolves and lions shall dwell with lambs. You see, Jesus came to bring peace to a groaning creation, a fifth type of peace, worldwide peace. As the kingdom of God spreads and triumphs, and tonight we'll be looking at just that, the the final sermon in this series. And I hope you will join us tonight. Remember, first and foremost, 52 times a year the Lord gives you a holiday. And today is that holiday, the Lord's Day. It's not a family day. It's the Lord's Day. Tonight we will be examining in Isaiah 9 the final preface and prophecy to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that when he comes, he brings the kingdom and he triumphs. He will bring peace in his wake. For the kingdom of Christ is righteousness and peace and joy, according to Romans 14. Remember the, the formal prophecy of Isaiah 9 is this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We'll examine this in great depth tonight in our final exposition of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah prophesied a day when this would occur when he wrote in Isaiah 2, they shall all beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How will this happen? Because the prince of peace, the reign of his kingdom will be so extended that peace will extend across the globe. How will he do this? How will he see that in all five of these realms that I spoke of, there will be peace? He will purchase it. He will earn it by his death. In fact, Isaiah will go on later to say in Isaiah 53 that the chastisement for our peace was upon him. When you think and consider the Lord Jesus hanging on Golgotha's tree, And you say, what is he doing there on the cross? You would be right to say he was purchasing peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. Internal peace. Peace in creation. Even worldwide peace between nations. He is buying it by his blood. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. The Apostle Paul clarifies this even more when he says in Ephesians 2. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. I want to make several applications of this title. And I want to think a little bit more about 
a subject I just raised. Today, as you are here, are you racked by inner turmoil? Jesus gives peace of mind and peace of heart. In John chapter 14, in the upper room discourse, just hours before he's arrested and then tortured and killed, Jesus, knowing what awaited him, in John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. How does Christ give peace to those who are ravaged by anxiety and nervousness and fear and worry? Christ does this by commanding you to first of all look at his finished work and be at peace. He does this by telling you to believe his word, the promises of a hope and a future. As I said, in fact, the evidence that a man is converted is the Holy Spirit has indwelt that person and by his work has mortified anxiety and fear and worry and nervousness and has vivified the spiritual discipline of peace. My friend today, if you're struggling with fear and worry and anxiety, Jesus died to bring you calm and rest. He is not the Lord of anxiety. He is the Prince of Peace. Another application. Those who belong to Christ and are under his rule, who are being conformed to his image, will be peacemakers. What a travesty that would be if we had a Savior, a Redeemer, who was known by this glorious title, Prince of Peace, but we were the disturbers of peace. One of the public promises that any person makes when they join this congregation or any PCA church is this, that they will strive for the peace of the church. When men are ordained to offices of elder and deacon, we are, as you may know, we are in that process. For the month of December, we are receiving nominations. That will close next Sunday night at 8 o'clock. But then those men who are Nominated, they'll go through a lengthy period, about six months of, of training with me and Pastor Dodds and Pastor King and Pastor Anderson on Wednesday nights. Then they'll go through a time of examination, and finally they'll set, be, be set before you for a time of election. And after all of that happens, they will stand before you to have hands laid upon them as they are ordained. And one of the vows that they will take, and so now they're doubly accountable, so they took this vow in membership, and now they'll take this vow as an elder or deacon is they will take this vow, do you promise to guard, to be vigilant, to guard, not disturb, to guard the peace of the church? You see, the one who has bowed his knee to Jesus as the Prince of Peace will be actively pursuing peace. He knows that's commanded in 2 Timothy 2. The one who is a believer will master the art of peacemaking because they're being conformed to the image of Christ. And they'll do this by at least the following. Richard Baxter in his letters to those who would be followers of the Prince of Peace. Letters to those who would be reconcilers. Letters to those who would be peacemakers said at minimum, those who are servants of Jesus will do this. They will stay out of any quarrel not concerning them. 
Through my 37 years as a pastor, I've watched people walk by a conversation. They hear that somebody is at odds with one another, and they'll stop and say, oh, tell me more. Can I take up a grudge with you? No, the believer, he will stay out of any quarrel. He will walk away when he hears of those who are not peace with one another. And the only reason why he'll stay in that group is to affect reconciliation. He'll not say, let me jump on the phone and call others and stir up the... No. First rule, for those who are the servants of the Prince of Peace, stay out of any quarrel not concerning you. Next, Paul writes in Romans 12 that we are to seek peaceful relations with all men, even the most bullheaded and difficult. Another direction for those who would be conformed to the image of the Prince of Peace. Develop a deep-seated willingness to acknowledge that it sometimes... Some portion of the cause of discord between ourselves and others lies at least partly within us. And we must own that. Another direction for those who would be peacemakers. Always be the least in your own eyes and in your conduct towards others. Endure being wronged and be ready to overlook offenses. Those are just the first few admonitions to those who would be conformed to the image of the Prince of Peace. A third application. If you came here today in a state of warfare with the living God, hating him, hating his commandments, hating his people, hating his word because it is a hindrance to your sin, today you may have peace with him. There is a mediator provided for you. This is the good news of the gospel. If you will cry out to Jesus as the Prince of Peace, He'll receive you and call an end to the hostilities between you and the Father. But finally, believer, how often do you praise our God? How, uh, how often do you loosen your lips to thank God that when you were at enmity with him, and you were, don't omit that aspect of your testimony. There was a time, for some of us it was decades there was a time when you were shaking your fist at God. How often do you praise our God that the Prince of Peace came after you and pursued you like the hound of heaven, sought you out, and made peace with you? Oh, may this truth, that Christ, the Prince of Peace, has come for us and has settled all enmity between us and a holy God. How should that loosen our tongues to praise him with joy? Let's pray together. Our Father, give us fresh wonder at the work of Christ. Cause us to rejoice with deep gratitude that Jesus has made peace when we would not and could not. Cause us now to be lovers of the peace and spreaders and makers.